0: Okay, so we're continuing on with chapter 11, which is vital signs. We've already gone over things like the respiratory rate, the pulse rate, skin signs, and pupillary uh, status. Now we're getting in and moving into blood
1: pressure. So blood
0: pressure is the force of blood against the arterial walls. That's what we're trying to measure is the pressure of that blood against those arterial walls. And blood pressure is measured in millimeters of mercury, which is abbreviated MMHG. Your systolic blood pressure, again, is going to be your highest number. It's going to be that top number. And that is the pressure that is present on those arterial walls during contraction of the left ventricle. And again, that's going to be the most, at any given time, that's the most amount of pressure those arterial walls are gonna be against is when that left ventricle is contracted. The systolic's top is the higher number, the diastolic is the bottom, and the diastolic blood pressure reflects vascular resistance and blood volume. It is the pressure present during relaxation of the left ventricle. So again, the diastolic the lower number, the bottom number, and that is basically measuring how much pressure is left in those arterial walls after the heart gets done beating, when the heart is not beating.
1: Normal blood pressure is very
0: wildly from four different patients. A normal systolic blood pressure for an adult is 120 millimeters of mercury or less. If we have a patient that is, and this isn't an acute change or just a sudden change, it would have to be a chronic Condition where their blood systolic blood pressure is always higher. If it's 121 to 139, it's considered pre-hypertensive. Above 140 is considered hypertensive. And this is also an important number for us to note as well. If the systolic blood pressure is below 90, that means that the patient is hypotensive. So when we talk about what that threshold is for a hypotensive patient, for an adult patient that's that threshold is going to be
1: 90 millimeters of mercury
0: Blood pressure can be an indicator for shock. The vital sign that we have that best represents overall perfusion in the body is going to be our blood pressure. Shock is a, is what, shock is poor perfusion or hypoperfusion. So in order, Shock is, or I'm sorry, blood pressure is a very good indicator of shock. A falling or low blood pressure is a late sign of shock. Normally in EMS, a blood pressure is not taken on children less than three years of age. So if they're under three, we don't worry about taking their blood pressure. They're not going to sit still for us. They're going to fight with us. It's going to be very difficult for us to auscultate or palpate it and hear it to begin with. And not only that, remember capillary refill is very, is very good, uh, more accurate in pediatrics. So if they're under three, don't worry about taking the blood pressure. Check the other vital signs, including
1: capillary refill. Here
0: is the normal blood pressures based on, again, all vital signs are based on age. So an adult patient, what is considered textbook normal, is 120 over 80. And again, as the kid gets younger, in the case of blood pressure, their blood pressure is lower. So a preschooler 3 to 5, again, that's the first age group that we're typically going to be taking blood pressures on. Their normal blood pressure is 89 to 112 over 46 to 72. So pretty significantly or can be significantly lower.
1: Hypotension
0: by age. So, again, adults and children over the age of 10, we use that 90 systolic threshold. So, if it's less than 90, they're considered hypotensive. For kiddos less than 10, there's a formula that we have to use. And that's two times the patient's age in years <clears throat> um, plus 70. So, if we had a four year old, four times two is eight. 70 plus 8 is 78, so if their blood pressure is less than 78, they're considered hypotensive. And for infants, and again, we do not typically check blood pressures on infants in the pre-hospital setting, we would consider it hypotensive if their pressure is below 60. The difference between systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure is known as the pulse pressure. So if we had a blood pressure of 120 over 100, and I'm just using very easy numbers to know, 120 over 100, all we would do is take 120, the systolic, minus the diastolic, which is 100. So 120 minus 100, we have a pulse pressure of 20. That's how we determine pulse pressure. Pulse pressure should be between 25 and 50 percent of the systolic. Less than 25% indicates a narrowing pulse pressure. Greater than 50% of the systolic indicates a widening pulse pressure. Narrowing pulse pressure is typically an indication of shock, bleeding, hypovolemic shock. Widening pulse pressures can indicate things like closed head
1: injuries with increased intracranial pressure. With all things being normal, a healthy
0: individual, or even in most conditions as well, normally the systolic and the diastolic are gonna rise and fall together. If something happens to cause the blood pressure to increase, the systolic goes up, so is the diastolic. If the patient's hypotensive and the systolic is falling, so is the diastolic. Again, low blood pressure is an indicator of hypoperfusion. Blood pressure is the best bottle sign that we have, that indicates perfusion to the vital organs. So if it's low, that means we're not getting very good perfusion. High blood pressure. Again, this is over time and a very acute change typically is not gonna do prolonged lasting damage, but chronic high blood pressure can damage the heart and the vessels as well. It makes them a lot more prone to serious disease processes and conditions. And again, just remember, like every other vital sign that we've discussed, it's only a single component of the assessment. Get a full set of vital signs. Complete your entire assessment on the patient before we worry too much about one individual vital sign or before we begin our treatment regimen. So how do we take a blood pressure? Blood pressure is measured with the blood pressure cuff. The fancy medical term for a blood pressure cuff is a sphygmomanometer. And there are two methods that we use to take a blood pressure with a blood pressure cuff. That is auscultated. Auscultated. Auscultation means listening. uh, For the systolic and the diastolic sounds with a stethoscope. So when you think about blood pressure, we think about auscultating a blood pressure that's using the blood pressure cuff. We have a stethoscope in our ears and we're listening over the inside of the arm. There's another way to check a blood pressure as well, and that's through palpation. Palpation means feeling. It's feeling for the return of the pulse as the cuff is deflating. We will use the radial pulse in order to check a palpated blood pressure. The problem with palpated blood pressures is we do not get a diastolic number with palpated pulses or blood pressures. The only thing that we can obtain through palpating a blood pressure is the systolic number. Luckily for us, pre-hospital setting anyway, the systolic is typically more important than the diastolic. So when we get our blood pressure cuffs, we need to make sure that we have the appropriate cup. There are multiple sizes of blood pressure cuffs from uh, kiddos, infants, uh, adults, large adults, even thigh cuffs. So in order for us to get the most accurate reading, the correct size must be utilized. If we use the wrong size cuff, we're not going to get accurate readings. Cuff is too small, it will give us a higher reading than than what it really is. So if our cuff doesn't fit right, it's too tight on the patient, it's going to increase the reading that we get on the blood pressure. And the opposite of that is true. If our cuff is too large, it's going to give us a lower reading
1: than it actually is.
0: So your cuff should encircle the patient's bare arm about one inch above the AC space without overlapping. And your AC space is the antecubital. It's the bend of the elbow. So we want that blood pressure cuff sitting about one inch above the
1: bend of the elbow. The size of the
0: cuff, the length of it, should cover about two-thirds of the upper arm. And the bladder should be centered over the brachial artery, cover one half of the circumference of the arm. For us, the designers of the blood pressure cuffs make it very easy. There are scales and gauges on these blood pressure cuffs to ensure that we're using the correct size. Properly fitted, the cuff should fit snugly but you should be able to place one uh, finder, that's finger, under the bottom edge of the cup. And again, most blood pressure cuffs are going to have indicator lines to assure proper uh, alignment or size, and they should properly align. Again, we'll demonstrate this on Friday when we start
1: talking about vital signs and practice. So the skill for taking a blood pressure by auscultation. Again, we're going to make sure that we have the correct size blood pressure cup. Pulse arrow, if you're put, should be
0: over the brachial artery. A lot of blood pressure cuffs will have a line that says artery here or left or right arm. You want that line roughly over the brachial artery. So there's a couple of ways we can do that. You can actually try to palpate and feel that brachial artery, so we know where it is, know where to listen to, and then line up your cuff, place your stethoscope over over where we feel. I don't prefer to do that. It's oftentimes on adult patients harder to find that brachial artery because their arms do have muscles on it, and it's too slow. That brachial artery runs on the medial aspect of that interior that arm. So just I will put the cuff right here with the line on the inside of the arm, put my stethoscope right there. As long as I'm relatively
1: close, I know I'm going to be able to hear. So with
0: the blood pressure cuff on, we know where that brachial artery is, roughly at least. We're going to close the valve, place the stethoscope over the brachial artery, and pump until the brachial pulse is no longer hurt. So when we initially put that stethoscope over that arm with no pressure inside that cuff, you will not hear the brachial pulse thump. You will not hear any type of thumping. So, once we start putting pressure in that cuff, once we get that pressure in the cuff above the diastolic number, the bottom number, now we will start hearing thumping in our stethoscope. From there, we're going to keep pumping up that stethoscope until we no longer hear the thumping. As that so we pump up to we no longer hear the thumping, then we go up an additional thirty millimeters of mercury. Now, at that point, we're going to start deflating the cuff slowly. We want the gauge to move about two millimeters of mercury per second going down. (laughs) Again, so pump it up till we hear it. Keep pumping up till we no longer hear it. Go up an additional 30. Now start coming down. What I tend to do instead of listening, pumping it up, listening, pausing, pumping it up, pausing, listening, I go up to 180 on every single patient, adult patient, back up. On every single adult patient, I'll go up to about 180 and then I'll pause and listen. If I don't hear anything at 180, now I'm going to start lowering it up down and listening for the pulses, for the thumps, the crop top sounds. Uh, If I hear it at 180, then I'll pump it up 30 more, listen again, and I'll keep repeating that till I'm no longer here again. EMS speed is often going to be important. This is easier for me as well. It's and it's faster for me, so I don't do the pump it up, list, pause, and listen. I just go up to 180 and listen. Don't hear it, go down. Do hear it, pump it up more, and
1: repeat that process till we no longer hear.
0: So again, we have our stethoscope on. We're lowering or releasing the pressure out of that cuff. And we're are just sitting there, and we're listening, and we're listening to the thumps, also known as the Korotkoff sounds. The first time that we hear the thump, that is our systolic blood pressure. So you hear the thump, remember that number. We're going to keep going down. As we're going down, we're going to continuously hear those thumps as we go down. As we go down, the last time we hear that thump, and then we don't hear it any longer, that is going to be our diastolic number. So the first time we hear it is systolic, the last time we hear it is the diastolic.
1: So key points on auscultation of blood pressure. Again, you will not hear the brachial
0: artery until some pressure is applied in the cuff. The pressure in the cuff has to be over the diastolic number or you're not going to hear anything in that artery. Once we get both of our readings, there's still going to be some pressure in the cuff. Don't go down slowly anymore after we get that bottom number, that diastolic number. Quickly release the pressure off that cuff, get the cuff off the patient's arm. It may be uncomfortable. And if we have to repeat vital signs or blood pressures on a patient, we should allow a minute or more of rest between attempts. That's just going to ensure it's giving us the most accurate reading, or just switch arms if we need to. For practice, it, you're going to be practicing blood pressures faster than every minute. We're not going to take that break in some situations. It's okay. We're not going to hurt the patient. What I'm saying is the reason we allow that rest is just to ensure we're getting an accurate reading on a real live patient.
1: So that was auscultated. Auscultated, stethoscope,
0: auscultation means listening. The other way we can attain a blood pressure is a palpated by feeling for the blood pressure. And this is utilized when taking an auscultated blood pressure is hindered. So this is typically a backup technique that we use. If we can't hear it for whatever reason, now we can get a palpated blood pressure. We prefer pal, uh, sorry, we prefer auscultated blood pressures over palpated. So if we have a lot of background noise where we can't hear the auscultated blood pressure, if we're in the back of the moving ambulance and we can't hear the blood pressure, now we can go and do a palpated blood pressure.
1: Oftentimes getting a palpated
0: blood pressure is much faster than getting an auscultated pressure. We're not having to slowly release it to get the systolic and the diastolic. We're just releasing, slowly releasing it until we get the systolic. And again, the biggest downside to a palpated blood pressure versus auscultated blood pressure is with a palpated blood pressure, you can only get a a systolic BP. Again, just the top number. You do not get a diastolic
1: pressure from a palpated blood pressure.
0: So again, the first steps are going to be the exact same. We're going to make sure that we have the right size blood pressure cuff. Once we have the cuff in place, now with one hand we're going to feel for that radial artery in the wrist. Feel and find that radial artery. Once we find that radial artery with the other hand, we're going to pump up the cuff until we no longer feel the radial pulse. Once we no longer feel the radial pulse, again we're going to go up an additional 30 and then we're going to start slowly letting the cuff deflate. Once we feel pulses return, that's our systolic pressure and once we feel the radial pulse, go ahead and fully release the cup. There's no point of going down slowly. Again, I kind of do the same technique. I find that radial pulse and me personally, I instantly pump it all the way up to 180. At 180, if I still pull the pulse, I'll keep going up. If I don't feel the radial pulse, then I'll start going down. Again, in this case, the first time we feel the pulse return that's our systolic pressure. Again, that's all we're getting with a palpated blood pressure.
1: Again, slowly deflate the cuff. When we feel pulses return, that's the systolic pressure. So again, once the systolic reading is obtained for palpated, release the cuff rapidly.
0: Again, we should allow a break break period if we're having to repeat it and once again, only the systolic blood pressure can be determined by
1: outpatient. So, blood pressure and force, pulse correlation.
0: This is something that's taught, but newer studies are showing that this is, in, in, in fact, not very accurate at all. So, it's something that we don't really hang our hats on too good. But this is saying. And the thought process used to be, if we have an adult patient and that adult patient has a radial pulse, that means that their blood pressure should be at least 80. So if we just needed to rapidly estimate, guesstimate what their blood pressure is, we could have felt for a radial pulse, have a radial pulse, well, we know their pressure is at least 80. So femoral pulse, it means the systolic blood pressure is at least 70. And if the carotid pulse is present, that's telling us that the systolic blood pressure is at least 60. Again, this has been shown not to be accurate. So I would not rely on this in the field. We need to get a blood pressure whenever it's indicated to do so.
1: Another thing that we oftentimes
0: do is take a set of orthostatic vital signs uh, on a patient as well. There are we use orthostatic vital signs to assess a patient with suspected volume loss. So a patient that's either severely dehydrated or someone that we think is bleeding internally or so forth, if we think they're volume depleted, we can do a orthostatic vital sign test on them to kind of confirm our suspicions. Orthostatic vital signs are better known or often referred to as a tilt test. So how orthostatic vital signs work is we take a pulse rate and a blood pressure while the patient is laying down. After the patient after we get that set of vital signs, we then stand the patient up and then after 2 minutes after standing them up, we're going to repeat the blood pressure
1: and the pulse rate.
0: And we're looking for changes in those vital signs. So it, from lying to standing or lying to sitting, which we typically do, if the heart rate increases by over 10 to 20 beats per minute and the systolic blood pressure decreases by 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury, that is telling us a significant loss of blood or fluid volume is indicated, meaning that this patient needs fluid replacement. So this is known as a positive tilt test. So again, tilt test is in order to check for volume depletion, typically we're gonna use it for suspected dehydration. And again, we're looking for those changes from lying to sitting or lying to
1: standing. If the patient
0: gets extremely dizzy upon lying to standing or completely passes out when we sit them up or send them out, that's automatically a positive tilt test. And again, we cannot have a patient stand up on their own if they have altered LOC or injuries that would prevent us from doing the orthostatic
1: or the tilt test on patients.
0: So again, we initially, we're going to take pulse rate, blood pressure with the patient lying supine. Then we're going to have the patient stand up. After two, two minutes, we're going to repeat that set of auto signs. Again, an increase in heart rate at 10 to two, 20 and a decrease in blood pressure from 10 to 20 systolic. Uh, Patient gets extremely dizzy, patient passes out or feels like they're gonna pass out. That's automatically a positive tilt. And again, that indicates
1: that the patient is volume depleted. So with bottle signs, and we've talked about
0: the, the main ones right now that we're gonna cover anyway, with vital signs, we don't do them just one time on patient transport. We have to do them multiple times on patient transport, so we're going to have to reassess these vital signs. If, in our opinion, we feel the patient is stable, then we can get by with repeating vital signs every 15 minutes or as often as necessary to ensure proper care. However, if we consider the patient unstable, then we have to take vital signs every Five minutes on the throughout transport. So if we have a 20 or 30 minute transport time, we're going to be doing bottle signs pretty frequently.
1: Also, we need to
0: reassess those bottle signs following interventions as well. If we have medications or so forth, we need to repeat bottle signs. Not only that, so what happens if we're in Lubbock and we run on a patient and we only have a three minute or four minute transport time with a stable patient? According to this, we don't have to reassess vital signs. However, there is state mandate, state rules. We do have to get on transports, we have to get at least two set of vital signs. So we'll get them initially, our initial set or baseline, and then it doesn't matter how long time has elapsed. When we get to the hospital, we're going to do another set of vital signs at the hospital to record those on our run report. We also can use monitoring equipment to help us monitor our patients as well. These are specialized equipment, maybe be used to monitor certain aspects of patient
1: status. Common
0: uh, monitoring equipment that we are going to use as basics include things like a non-invasive blood pressure monitoring. That is a monitor, a machine that takes the blood pressure for us, and pulse oxes. And pulse oxes we're going to use on every single patient. Another equipment can be things like glucometers to check patient's blood sugar and capnometry, capnography, which is in tidal CO2 monitoring, which we are measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in the patient's exhaled air. So again, the most common piece of t- technology that we use in the back of the truck or monitoring technology, is a pulse ox. This is a oxygen saturation assessment. So this detects hypoxia by measuring oxygen saturation levels in the blood's hemoglobin. And the reading that we get on pulse oxes is a percentage of SpO2. So normal SpO2 in a patient is 97 to 100%. These next numbers are important to remember. If we have a pulse ox rating of less than 94, that indicates hypoxia. Less than 90, that's indicating severe hypoxia in our patient. So again, with all medical patients, the pulse ox goal should be 94% or above. And we talked about some situations previously where we don't really rely at all on pulse ox readings, but it's just a normal, routine medical our O2 sat goals are 94% or above. So if somebody is satting 95% on a room air complaining of chest pain, they don't need supplemental oxygen because their O2 sats are already above 94%. Same patient though now complaining of trouble breathing, now they do need oxygen because of their complaint of dyspnea. And this does get a little confusing. Some patients, we focus pretty heavily on pulse ox. Other patients, we don't rely on it much at all.
1: So, uh, Pulse Ox
0: has a probe that's clipped or attached by adhesive back sensors to the patient's fingers, toes, earlobe, or across the bridge of the nose. Most common location is going to be on the patient's finger. Uh, Most ones in this, most pulse Oxes in this area, UNC EMS, they use the fingertip probe. So, it's just the entire machine and unit goes on the finger. Our heart monitors also have pulse Oxes built into it where it's just a clip that goes on the finger. They also make pediatric clips. In most common times, the smaller kids' clips, they're actually like a Band-Aid that will wrap around the finger or the hand or foot and stick to it so the kid doesn't
1: shuck it off during transport.
0: How it works, the probe has an infrared light that shines through the tissue to a photo sensor on the opposite side, based on how the light is reflected, how much gets through, so forth. The light detects the amount of hemoglobin in the blood
1: that is saturated with oxygen. So again, the pulse ox will give
0: an oxygen concentration reading, as well as a pulse reading as well. So the pulse oxes are gonna give us two numbers. One of them is going to be the pulse ox reading, 0 2 sats The other number it's going to give us is the patient's pulse rate. In order for a pulse ox to work, it requires pulsating blood to, to get an accurate reading. So it's monitoring that pulsating blood, so it's actually counting the pulse rate for us as well. So we're going to use that pulse rate number on the pulse ox to ensure that our machine is actually getting an accurate reading. So to assure accuracy, the pulse indicated on the pulse ox should match the palpated pulse. It needs to be pretty close. If it does not match, so if we feel a palpated pulse and we're getting a reading of 110 and our pulse ox is only showing that the pulse rate is 68, again, that's a huge difference. We're not going to trust the pulse ox reading in that case. We're assuming we're getting an inaccurate reading. So again, the pulse rate that we feel needs to match the pulse rate that's displayed on that pulse ox. Again, if it does not match, accuracy cannot be determined, and the oxygen may need to be administered. We may have to use other assessment tools to decide whether that patient needs oxygen or not. And when we check that, we want the, we're, how we state that is that the pulse ox is correlating with a palpable pulse.
1: So we want it to correlate.
0: different types of pulse oxes this is a just a standalone unit that's all it really is is a pulse ox this one in in this case actually measures carbon monoxide methemoglobin and so forth as well but they do make just pulse oxes that look like this this one is what we will typically use on our monitor this is what that finger clip or probe is going to look like coming out of our monitor And again, this is that fingertip where the entire machine is built into it and the whole thing goes on the patient's finger. These are the ones that UMC EMS use on almost every single patient. If the patient's going to get put on the monitor, they'll use this one, but at least initially every single patient is probably going to get
1: thrown on one of these. Other pulse ox
0: sites, we typically don't use this one or that one, but it can, they do make probes that go on the earlobe across the bridge of the nose. We, we do carry these. So if we need to hook this up to a pediatric, we will have these type of probes that will can hook up to our monitor. And if it's a smaller kid, we can put the probe over the main
1: part of the foot if we need to as well. So when should we use a pulse ox on our patient?
0: we consider pulse ox now a vital sign. So every single patient contact we have when we assess vital signs, we're also assessing a pulse ox as well. And pulse ox is a significant value whenever the patient's oxygen status is a concern or when hypoxia is suspected. And again, it's a vital sign. So we put a pulse ox on every single patient.
1: There are some
0: limitations to the pulse ox. We may not get accurate readings on that pulse ox in certain situations. Pulse oximetry can measure other gases as well. So uh, a standalone pulse ox cannot differentiate between oxygen and other gases. So if another gas can bind to hemoglobin, the pulse ox assumes it's oxygen and is gonna give us that 0 2 sat reading. Uh, Again, the reading will be from whatever gas is attached to the hemoglobin, not the oxygen. And the main gas that I'm referring to here is carbon monoxide. So if we have somebody that was pulled from a burning building, do not trust your pulse ox because we don't know if it's reading oxygen levels or if it's reading carbon monoxide levels that's bound to the hemoglobin. Both oxygen and CO can bind to hemoglobin. Other limitations, any condition that interferes with blood flow into the area where the probe is attached may produce wrong readings. So again, it requires pulsating blood flow to the fingertips in most cases. So if there's anything that's limiting blood flow to that hand, that fingertip, where that probe is, we're not going to get accurate readings probably. So patients with low blood pressures, as they start getting hypotensive, our pulse ox readings tend to not get a very accurate reading. If their hands are extremely cold, we tend to not get very good readings as well. If the patient has dark or metallic type of fingernail polish on, that light can't penetrate it, so we don't get accurate readings. Most EMS trucks carry fingernail polish remover in their ambulances for that reason. So somebody has dark Nail polish or reflective nail polish, we can clean it
1: off the patient. So reading patient
0: readings may be inaccurate in certain patients. Again, things like shock, because their blood pressure is low and they're not getting good peripheral circulation to the fingertips. Again, hypothermia, low core temperature. Their hand, even if their hands are extremely cold, we don't get very good readings. Excessive patient movement, if the patient's flailing around with that pulse ox probe on their finger, they're not get, we're not going to get a good reading while they're moving. Again, nail polish, it actually reflects the light or prevents that light from penetrating through the tissue to the other side where the sensor is located. Again, carbon monoxide exposure. And if a patient is anemic, low iron, low hemoglobin, we may not get the best readings
1: on those type of patients as well. So, procedure for determining the SpO2 Sat reading: We connect the sensor to the SpO2 monitor, and then we put the probe on the patient.
0: Turn on the device. Again, we big thing here is we want to make sure that the pulse rate that is displayed is is correlating with the pulse rate that we feel. If it's close, we can assume it's accurate, document your reading. And with pulse ox, just like with every other bottle sign, we repeat it when we repeat bottle signs. Good thing about a pulse ox, we can leave it on their finger throughout the entire transport and just kind of keep glancing at it as well.
1: And you notice when I'm talking about pulse socks.
0: I'm calling it an O2 sat. It is not a O2 stat. Stat. It's not a statistic. It's oxygen saturation, and that is probably my biggest pet peeve in medicine: is people people refer to it as a pull as an O2 stat instead of instead of sat. So you will get corrected because it is, it does bug me, and I don't know why it bugs me, but it does. So pulse ox readings alone should not be used to determine the need for oxygenation. Again, there are certain patients where we do put a lot of weight on pulse ox readings to make that determination. Again, it's just one vital sign. So it's an overall patient as a whole. Again, there's other situations. We don't care what that pulse ox reading is. They're getting placed on oxygen regardless. Chief complaint, injuries should also be considered to determine the need for oxygenation. So make sure that we're treating the patient and not solely treating the patient based on what one piece of equipment is telling us. <clears throat> Another piece of medical technology is a non-invasive blood pressure monitor, blood pressure machine. This is a device that automatically measures the blood pressure and provides an electronic readout for us. In the pre-hospital setting, on ambulances where we typically see uh, blood pressure machines at, is they're built into our cardiac monitor. So our cardiac monitor does multitude of things. Good thing about blood pressure monitors or machines is we can have presets in them where the blood pressure will automatically recycle and recheck every five minutes or every 15 minutes if we want to set that preset to. So we don't have to sit there and constantly keep an eye on time just to repeat bottle signs. The machine can do that for us. All of them though, we can set these intervals. They also have an automatic or a, a manual button that we can push to do it immediately if need be. These monitors also have alarms, lows or highs where if the blood pressure falls below a certain threshold, we're going to get an audible alarm that's going to alert us that, hey, something is wrong with the patient.
1: A downside to non-invasive blood pressure monitors
0: is they can be affected by movement. So traveling in the back of the ambulance, it may cause to get us a bad reading. However, the newer ones, Do a very good job of filtering out movement and noise, and they are, they've been proven to be pretty accurate machines. Some of them, most of them do require constant or frequent calibration. UMCMS, I think they have to send theirs to be checked out uh, four times a year, uh, along with the rest of their equipment, maybe only two, somewhere around there. Accuracy of a blood pressure, uh, automatic, automated blood pressure should be verified and first blood pressure should be taken by auscultation. And this is a pretty standard protocol throughout the region, throughout EMS as well. We can use non-invasive blood pressure machines. However, that first initial blood pressure that we take needs to be manual by auscultation. From there, now we can throw them onto the machine. If what the machine is reading is close to our initial we can trust that blood pressure machine is giving us accurate readings so again that first blood pressure the first set of vital signs that we take on a patient the blood pressure does need to be performed manually at the hospital they're going to let y'all use blood pressure machines pretty frequently on probably every single patient you probably won't check too many manual blood pressures in the hospital setting however in the field most of your preceptors are not going to let you use the blood pressure machine for any patient. They want you to practice and get proficient with manual bottle signs. <clears throat> and a big thing when we're dealing with these monitors is never trust a sketchy blood pressure. At blood pressure, we've been getting readings 120 systolic, 128 systolic, 126 systolic. And all of a sudden, when now we're getting a reading of 98 systolic, something changed. So don't trust that as an accurate blood pressure. Take the machine off, check a manual blood pressure to confirm or to determine whether the machine just gave us a bad
1: reading for that one time. Again,
0: non-invasive blood pressure devices, this is just a standalone device. Some services carry them, again, not too too many though. Uh, Again, where most EMS services carry blood pressure machines, it's going to be actually built into their cardiac monitors. So this is a Zoll X series monitor, the most popular monitor inside of Lovett County. This is a LifePack 15, most popular model outside of Lovett County in the Spams region. Anyway, EMCMS, they use these. Almost every service outside of Lovett County are, are going to use these.
1: <clears throat> so procedure for non-invasive blood pressure. Tell the patient what we're going to do. Again, that first blood pressure that we take should be done manually. Again, they do make different size cuffs through the machines. Make sure that the prop, we do have the proper size cuff. It is in the correct position.
0: Activate the device. After the cuff deflates, again, the systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure will be displayed on our screen. Again, if we want to or can set up the automatic time increments and alarm settings. Again, if desired to do
1: so. <clears throat> Capnometry. Capnometry
0: monitors end-tidal carbon dioxide levels, which is abbreviated ETCO2. Right, and what we tend to call it is is CO2. So in tidal, CO2 monitoring is a non-invasive method of measuring levels of carbon dioxide at the end of the exhale breath. So all this is is a machine that's basically catching or letting the patient's exhale air pass through it. And we're monitoring, or it's counting what their carbon dioxide level is. An ETCO2 in title is the measurement of the carbon dioxide at the end. Of expiration. So at the end of the patient's breath, that's when
1: we're getting that entitled reading.
0: PACO2 is the partial pressure of CO2 in the arterial blood. We don't read or monitor PACO2. That takes uh, arterial gases at the hospital in order to run those. Uh, directly impacted by the quality of alveolar vent- uh, ventilation. N tidal CO2, PaCO2, they're both measured in millimeters of mercury or four. It's the same measurement, it's kind of referred to a little bit differently. <clears throat> so 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury is considered to be within the normal range of N CO2. That's what we want those readings to be. A capnogram is the visual recording of CO2 waveform through the phases of breathing. We can actually see this, see the patient breathe on a monitor. So, some reasons why entitled CO two uh, readings can change. If the patient is hyperventilating, they're breathing fast, the faster they're breathed, the more carbon dioxide they're breathing off. So we're going to get lower than normal tidal CO two readings the faster the patient's breathing. And the opposite is true for hypoventilation. If the patient is breathing slowly, they're not able to breathe off that carbon dioxide. They're holding on to it. So their end tidal CO2 readings are going to be high if the patient's breathing slowly.
1: Breathing will decrease with a
0: decrease in cardiac output as well. Remember, where do we get our carbon dioxide from? It's the waste product from metabolism. So it's coming from the cells. How does it get to the lungs? Well, it gets circulated by the heart and the blood? So if our cardiac output is poor, we're going to see a drop in end-tidal CO2 readings because blood's not circulating proficiently to pick up that waste product. The reading will increase with
1: improvement in alveolar ventilation as well. Sudden increase in entitled CO2 reading in a patient
0: that's in cardiac arrest tends to indicate that the patient possibly has regained pulses. So, if we have a patient that's in cardiac arrest, we're doing CPR re- on them and we're getting pul- entitled readings of like 18 or lower than that, probably. And then all of a sudden, we get a reading of 35, 45 or even higher, just a sudden dramatic increase in that entitled CO2 reading. The reason that dramatic increase occurred is probably because the pulse patient started pulse or heart started beating again on its own. Heart's going to be much more proficient at circulating that entitled CO2 than we are going to be by pumping on the chest. So, a sudden increase in a cardiac arrest patient may indicate the patient has regained pulses. Another big use of entitled CO2 is we use entitled CO2 to confirm tube placement uh, if we intubate a patient. So again, if there's in, in your throat, in your uh, neck, there's two holes you can go into with an ET tube if we're trying to intubate. It's either going to go in the trachea where we want it to, or it's going to go into the esophagus where we don't want it to. The esophagus leads to the stomach. So if we intubate a patient, we're going to throw capnography on it and we're going to watch that waveform. If we're getting entitled CO2 readings, that's coming from the lungs. So, the presence of entitled CO2 in the tracheal tubes telling us, hey, we're in the right hole, we're in the right spot, we can leave it in place. If that tube went into the esophagus now, we're not going to get entitled CO2 readings because entitled CO2 doesn't come from the stomach. So, this is the gold standard in verifying proper ET tube placement or any advanced airway for that matter is we confirm placement with end tidal CO2. If you move on to advance, there's a pretty long lecture about end tidal CO2. So reasons for changes. Again, during CPR, we can use waveform capnography to actually tell us how well our compressions are. are. We have a decrease in ETCO2 readings. That typically means that a very low end tidal readings on the patient cardiac arrest tends to tell us the patient's probably been down a while as well. But if we're doing chest compressions on a patient, and now we start seeing a slow, low, slowly lowering of the end reading, that's probably telling us that whoever's doing chest compressions is getting fatigued, and they need to switch out to somebody else, or we're just doing poor or CPR. And again, a sudden increase can indicate ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation. So if we're doing CPR, getting poor readings, poor readings, all of a sudden we get good readings, Again, that tends to
1: indicate that, hey, we got a false factor. Follow
0: your protocols about the use of entitled CO2. There's a lot more emphasis on entitled CO2 through the advanced and paramedic programs. Basics are starting to be able to use entitled more and more, though, in the field. It's not invasive, so why not, in my opinion? This area, though, it still tends to be towards advanced and paramedic. So... Another important aspect that we got to do when we're dealing with patients is taking a history from them. We have to be able to talk to our patients. So in order for us to talk to our patients to figure out, well, hey, what the hell is going on? We need to make sure that we are gaining control of the scene. If it's a very chaotic scene with a lot going on, we're going to get distracted. The patient's going to get distracted and we're not going to be able to get a good history. We also have to build a rapport with that patient and get that patient to trust us and first impressions count. So we need to be able to display competence. They need to feel like we know what we're doing. We need to show that we're confident. We can freak out on the inside and many times we're going to, but externally we don't need to show the family or the patient that we're freaking out. And we need to be compassionate as well. Part of that gaining control of the scene, we need to eliminate or reduce distractions. Get people, bystanders, crowds away from our patient. Do what we can again to reduce those distractions. If we can't control the scene, get the patient at the back of the truck. We have complete control of the environment in the back of our truck. We need to achieve a smooth transition of care. If we are picking up our patient from another healthcare provider, such as at a doctor's office, or a nursing home, assisted living, whatever the case may be, but we're picking up our patient and there's another healthcare care provider on scene. We're going to get a report from that other healthcare care provider. They're going to tell us the history, what's going on, whether they're going to the hospital, etc. Let's take the time and listen to that report. Take steps to reduce the patient's anxiety. Again, bring order to the environment. Again, if the the environment is extremely distracting, et cetera. Load them up, get into the back of our truck where we, again, can control it. We need to introduce ourselves to the patient. And typically, that should be the first words out of your mouth when we approach a conscious patient. Hi, my name is Mason Powers. I'm a paramedic with UMC EMS. What's going on today? Again, we need to introduce ourselves to our patient, build that rapport with our patient. We do need consent to treat. Y'all talked about consent previously. Every single patient interaction, we have to have some form of consent. So patients over the age of 18 tells us we can treat them. We can treat them. So uh, let me see. Cole, what happens if we have a 14-year-old patient? Can the 14-year-old give us consent to treat
1: or transport? You need a a, a
0: a like a guardian or something that's consent. So, who
1: in Texas can consent for a minor?
0: That would be um, like the parents. Uh, okay.
1: They're uh, a legal guardian. Okay. A um, like an aunt, uncle, like like direct family member.
0: Adult aunt or uncle, adult brother and sister, and grandparents. So can I can I give consent
1: for my cousin that's only 17?
0: No, cousins cannot consent. All right, uh Nathan, same situation. We have a 14-year-old pretty sick. We think they need to go to the hospital. He can't give us consent to treat or transport them. We can't get a hold of mom or dad or a guardian to give us consent. Now what do we do? Call oh, law enforcement. Why law enforcement? Um, there. There's no crime. There ain't nothing yet. We they we need from law enforcement case. they can act as legal guardians until the parents get there, or they can get social services involved. Does anybody anybody agree with Nathan? Anybody disagree with Nathan?
1: How would we properly handle that situation?
0: If I remember correctly, you said it was implied consent we assume that the parent wants them to be treated? Absolutely correct. 14 year old can't give us consent. More importantly for us anyway, they can't refuse medical care as well. So we have a 14 year old that's sick, needs to go to the hospital. We can't get hold of mom, dad, grandparents, so forth. We don't need to call law enforcement or child social social services. We can treat them under implied consent. We would take that kid to the hospital under the uh, the under that implied consent you need to understand consent because it's very important you need to understand who can consent who can't con- who cannot consent for minors as well
1: and it just seems kind of like legal
0: nuance then because it's like if it's implied consent it, just because a parent isn't around Then what was the point of even having parental consent? Because, and so when I when I think about consent, and and again, this is just kind of how it is in my mind. We do have to have consent to transport every single patient. Remember, patient refusals though. We have to, in order for somebody to refuse care, they have to be comp adult, a conscious competent, understand risks and complications, and they have to be an adult. So if we're getting dispatched to a scene, I'm under the assumption that, hey, we have consent until somebody tells us we do not have consent. So an adult patient can, or an adult parent guardian can refuse care for a 14-year-old. But again, or they can give us consent for that 14-year-old. If mom or dad's dad is, is reachable, it is technically it is going to be their decision. But again, that 14-year-old cannot refuse care. If we think the kid needs to go to the hospital, nobody's there to refuse. We will treat them under implied. Again, a normal person parent would want their 14-year-old kid that is sick or injured to go to the hospital to be evaluated.
1: Yeah, I understand. It just seems kind of like a little, little bit of semantics there. but
0: No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And again, To me, it boils down to more on the refusal side, more so than the actual saying, yes, I want you to go to the hospital. That's the way I look at it. Can this patient refuse? If they can refuse or they can't refuse, then we go from there. We want to position ourselves when we're talking to our patients. We want to make eye contact with our patients. We also may need to, if it's a kid we're dealing with, we want to drop down to eye level, so
1: forth. Use good communication skills. Be
0: courteous, kind, respectful, and use touch when appropriate. Something as simple as placing your hand over their shoulder, on top of their hand, on their knee, can go a long way showing that we care about them, that we're compassionate about what's going on, and that we are invested,
1: we're there to help them. Maintain
0: control. Recognize when a scene cannot be controlled and do not jeopardize your own safety. Your safety is the most important aspect. If that situation is dangerous, we're not gonna approach the scene. If we're on that scene and the situation turns dangerous, we have no obligation to stay. Our safety's first. We get on the scene, get out to the scene, we realize, hey, this ain't safe for us to be here, turn around and leave. Try to bring the patient with us if we can, but if we can't, leave the scene.
1: If necessary, remove yourself and the patient from the scene. And again, scene safety is always your first concern. All right. Any questions or anything we covered so far? All right, let's go ahead and take our first. Break. So moving on to actually taking the history. So, the history
0: begins with the reason why EMS was called to the scene. This is known as the chief complaint. By talking to our patients, getting that chief complaint, getting the history of what's going on, past medical history, et cetera, it's going to help guide the examination. And this process must be dynamic for the situation. There are standard questions that we ask every single patient that we run on. But based on how patients answer previous questions, that's going to dictate the next set of questions that we ask, etc. So it's very situational about what's actually going
1: on with the patient. If at all possible,
0: we we want to get our history from our actual patient. We want the patient to be the one talking, preferably not family members, etc. Now we can use family members or others that know the patient if the patient is unable to give us that information themselves. So after the chief complaint is determined, now we go on to determine the history of present illness. So again, the chief complaint, why are we called here? Again, that statement that I mentioned earlier, that should cue them up or kind of set that in motion. Hi, my name is Mason Powers. I'm a paramedic with UMCMS. What is going on today? That's how we typically obtain chief complaint. Oh, my chest hurts. There's our chief complaint. It's going to be chest pain. Some information that we do need obtained is statistical demographic information, the date, time of the call, patients identifying data, name, uh, date of birth, all of that good stuff we get on every single patient. Other questions, we're going to ask about their current health status as well. We want to know what medications is the patient taking. Definitely got to ask about allergies. Is this patient allergic to any medications or substances? If relevant, you ask about tobacco
1: use, smoking, et cetera.
0: Again, current health status considerations as relevant, Alcohol, drugs, or related substances, we need to know if they've been drinking, are they taking any illegal drugs? Again, if relevant, we may ask about their diet. Have you been eating like you normally have? Have you had an increased appetite, a decreased appetite? Have you had any recent screening tests, patient complaining of chest pain? Do they have a history of cardiac history? Did they see a cardiologist? When was the last time you saw your cardiologist? What type of tests did they run? What was the results of those tests? Immunizations may be important as well, may not be environmental hazards that the patient is working in or living in. For trauma situations, use of safety equipment. Patient was involved in an MVC motor vehicle collision. We want to know what type of safety equipment they were using, where you were in your seatbelt, did their airbags deploy? If it was a fall at work, were they wearing helmets, whatever the case may be? And again, only if relevant, we can ask about family history as well
1: So, techniques for
0: taking a patient history. We need to have be able to write notes. So note taking, documentation, document the information. The patient provides as accurately as possible. We need to keep notes about what we ask the patient and how they respond. Becky emphasized using one of those spiral notebooks that fit in, in your pocket. Again, those are very important. Another thing that we commonly do on scene with the patient is we write notes on our gloves, front and back of a glove. That way we know that information That's preventing us from having to re-ask the same question over and over again, pissing the patient off. And then when we go back and actually document, we have that information available for us. The type of questions that we need to ask a patient, we try to ask open-ended questions. Those open-ended questions can yield more information. So we're not asking simple, in most cases, we don't answer or ask simple yes or no questions. What's going on today? Where are you hurting at? Can you describe that pain for me, et cetera? Those are all open-ended questions. There are certain situations though that closed-ended questions are also useful. If we need that information just really, really quick, we can ask a simple yes or no. Do you have diabetes? Patient likes to talk, rambles on and on and on. We're gonna have to maintain control of that interview. We may have to move to more
1: closed-ended questions. Use our
0: active listening techniques. Some of these active listening techniques is facilitation, maintain eye contact in a severe, uh, sincere manner, posture, actions, facial expressions, words, or cues while listening to make the patient feel more comfortable. Again, we're just encouraging the patient to talk. Maintaining eye contact with that patient as they're speaking with us, nodding their head, our heads. Same things like, uh-huh, go on, etc. cetera. We're trying to facilitate them to get them to open up and talk to us. Reflection, repeating the words back to the patient. Again, okay, so you're, you're having chest pain. Again, we're just kind of reflecting, repeating those words back to the patient. We do need to avoid interruptions. The patient should do the majority of the talking during the interview. We ask simple, open-ended questions. Now we want them to take over. We want them to do the majority of the talking. And again, try to avoid interruptions while talking to them.
1: Clarification. Uh, Clarify ambiguous
0: statements, responses, symptoms, or words. If the patient says their stomach's hurting, that's pretty ambiguous. We need to go into more detail. We want to figure out exactly where that stomach is hurting at. So ask them, can you point with us? How long has it been hurting? Again, just kind of clarifying, getting into more, the more detail that we tend to need. Empathetic responses. Show empathy through verbal responses and gestures. Some things like, I understand, or I understand what you're going through, et cetera.
1: Confrontation. You may need to
0: confront the patient to determine the accuracy of their information. Something like you said that you do not have any medical history, no medical problems, but I see you have a prescription for insulin. What do you take the insulin for? Oh, I have diabetes. So again, they're telling us something that is we know is not true and we need to get, get that information from them. And again, patients are, are bad about that especially with high blood pressure medication. Do you have any medical history? No, I don't, do not. Okay, I see you take lisinopril. What do you take lisinopril for? Well, it I take it for my blood pressure. So you have a history of high blood pressure. No, the lisinopril I'm taking makes me have normal blood pressure. Very, very common. They still have a history of high blood pressure. So again, we may need to confront. Another common confrontation is about alcohol use. They're afraid they're going to get in trouble if they fess up to drinking alcohol, so they're going to tell us, no, I haven't been drinking. The use of alcohol is always going to be medically relevant for us, so we need to know if they've been drinking. Hey, buddy, I know you told me you haven't been drinking. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. We picked you up from a bar. You smell like alcohol. We're not here to get you in any trouble. We just need to know because it may affect our treatment. Have you been drinking alcohol? Again, that's confronting. Interpretation, making inference based on uh, the observations, again, may take confrontation to the next level. We're kind of just gathering this information, interpreting it, coming up with what we think is going on. So a standardized approach to history taking, and again, a little uh, clue for you coming up. If you see a mnemonic, In class, on a slide, I could almost guarantee the mnemonic is going to be on your test in some form or fashion. You need to memorize mnemonics. So we take a sample history. Every single patient, we ask this information from the patient. Again, this is just kind of your base baseline. We ask more questions in this, but a sample history is, is something that we do need to take. So, What does SAMPLE stand for? The S stands for signs and symptoms. Where are you hurting at? Do we see anything for the patient? The A is allergies and we're going to talk about these individually as well. Are you allergic to anything? The M is medications. Are you currently taking any medications? P is past medical history. I don't like pertinent. I prefer past. We ask them what type of medical history they have. We are the ones that can determine if it's pertinent or not and needs to be documented. L is last oral intake. When was the last time you had anything to eat or drink? And E is events leading up to the illness or injury. What were you doing when your chest pain started? Or what were you doing right before you fell? So again, every single patient, we need to get bare minimum sample. Again, we do dive deeper into questioning, this is just very basic information. So again, breaking these down individually. San- the S on sample stands for signs and symptoms, and there is a difference between a sign and a symptom. A sign are any objective evidence that you can see, hear, feel, or smell. These are things that we see. So the patient is diaphoretic, sweating heavily. That's a sign. They're cyanotic. That's a sign. Patient is vomiting, the act of actually vomiting
1: is a sign. So bleeding, temperature, all of our vital signs are signs.
0: Symptoms on the other hand are conditions that cannot be observed by the EMT and must be described by the patient. So again, we can't see things like pain. Patients complaining of chest pain, Unless it's a traumatic injury where we see something sticking out of their chest, we're not going to see chest pain. So that is a symptom. Nausea. Patient complains of feeling sick to their stomach. Numbness, etc. We can't see it. We have to get that information from the patient themselves. That's a symptom.
1: Again, A is allergies.
0: Determine if the patient is allergic to medications foods, or other agents. We, in most situations, we care much more about the allergies to medications than anything else. Now, if we're worried about a suspected allergic reaction, then yes, we're going to dive deeper into allergies. But for every single patient, regardless of what's going on, we definitely are worried about allergies to medications. And that's something that we have to ask before we give them any type of medication as well. We don't want to give them something they're allergic to. So medications, determine if the patient has taken any medications recently and what medications do they take on a regular basis. This includes prescription medications, OTC, over-the-counter medications, ibuprofen, Tylenol, whatever the case may be, illicit drugs, herbal medications, vitamins, or have they been taking somebody else's prescribed medications as well? He is past medical history, underlying medical conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, stroke, respiratory diseases, etc. Again, I tend to ask what type of medical history do you have, and I'm going to document everything. Certain situations we may want to ask about if they've had any previous surgical
1: uh, procedures. Any recent trauma.
0: And again, certain medical conditions or diagnoses, diagnoses, those type of patients are prone to having medical alert tags. Seizure patients and diabetics are the most notorious for having medical alert tags. So that's something that we should keep an eye out on
1: as we're assessing our patients.
0: L's last oral intake, find out what in, or find out when the path patient last ingested So when was the last time you had anything to eat or drink? If it's relevant, find out how much it was. If they're alcohol, we want to know how much alcohol did you drink? Everybody in the world gets hammered drunk off of how many beers? Two beers. They're going to lie to you. They're going to tell you. Yeah, I've been drinking. I've only had two. But again, those are questions we need you to ask. Again, when was the last time you had anything to eat or drink? Most of the time, Most situations, it's probably not going to be too relevant for us. It's something that we still typically ask. Allergic reaction, for example, we want to know, well, when's the last time you had anything to drink? Maybe you're having a reaction to that substance. Foodborne diseases or infections, kind of the same thing. Traumas, this is a very important question, not necessarily for us, but for the hospitals. Most traumas, major traumas anyway, require surgical intervention anesthesiologists are definitely going to want to know when the last time the patient had anything to eat or drink. Events leading up to the illness or injury. What occurred before the patient became sick or injured? Okay, what were you doing when your chest pain started? I was out mowing the yard. Okay, so that chest pain was brought on by exertion. Okay, compare that to I was asleep and the chest pain woke me up in the middle of the night. Again, Is it going to really change our treatment? Probably not, but it is something that's pretty important for us to know. Were there any unusual circumstances? Again, so what were you doing when your pain began? Especially for falls, we want to know what caused them to fall. Did you just trip over a rug when you fell, causing you to fall, or miss a step, causing you to fall, or did you get lightheaded and dizzy that caused you to fall? One of them is going to be Pure trauma. They tripped on a rug. That's probably just a pure traumatic patient. Patient states they got lightheaded and dizzy, causing them to fall. Now we have both a medical patient and a trauma patient that we're going to have to deal with. So again, very important information. Sample history, every single patient. Now there's another acronym that we use to go or to dive deeper into the patient's chief complaint or their signs and symptoms. And this mnemonic is OPQRST. So the mnemonic OPQRST helps you evaluate signs and symptoms. Again, we're diving deeper into kind of that chief complaint. So the O for OPQRST stands for onset. Onset and events from sample are basically the same thing. So sample the E, OPQRST, the O, they're the same thing. The P's, provocation, palliation, position. Is there anything that you do that makes their signs and symptoms better or worse? Where are you hurting at? Q is quality. You describe that pain for me. What's that pain feel like? R is radiation. Does that pain move anywhere or does it stay in one spot? S is severity. On a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst pain you ever felt, how bad's that pain? And T is time. How long ago did the signs and symptoms start? So with OPQRST, OPQRST works great for any complaint of pain. If a patient is complaining of some type of pain, OPQRST definitely needs to be obtained. With a cheap complaint of something like respiratory distress, some of these items are not going to line up very well with other types of complaints like difficulty breathing. So just get what we can with OPQRST. So again, we're going to go through these individually. Onset, what and how did the sign the symptoms begin? Was it sudden or gradual? What were you doing when the pain began? So again, the E in sample and the O in OPQRST are basically the same. The P, provocation, palliation, position. What makes the symptoms better or worse? What position is the patient found in? Respiratory distress patients are notorious to be found in that tripod position sitting forward. That should tell us as soon as we walk in, hey, they're probably having trouble breathing. They're sitting like this because that's letting them breathe the easiest. A lot of respiratory distress patients cannot lay flat on their back. That's going to not kill them. It's going to feel like it's killing them and suffocating them. So again, noting their position is going to be important as well. If it's uh, complaining of pain, again, patients complaining of chest pain, provocation, palliation. Is there anything that you do that makes that pain better or worse? Does it hurt worse when I touch it? Does it hurt worse when you breathe in? Does it hurt worse when you cough, et cetera?
1: The cue is
0: quality. How would you describe the pain? So you're complaining of chest pain. Can you tell me what that pain feels like? Is it dull pain, sharp pain, heavy pain, crushing pain, et cetera? We want in the patient's own words to describe what that pain feels like. It feels like an elephant is sitting on my chest. That would be quality. Radiation, where do you feel the pain? And do you hurt anywhere else? Okay, your chest is hurting. Do you point where on your chest? It hurts right here and right under my sternum. Okay, does that pain move anywhere to your shoulders, to your neck, your jaw, your back, or does it stay in one spot?
1: As the severity on a scale from one to 10, how would you rate that pain? 10 being the worst.
0: Kind of like the two beers, if they're calling us, most times people are going to claim that the pain is a 10 out of 10, even though it's pretty obvious that it's not. Time, how long have you had these symptoms? When do they start? How long has that chest pain been hurting? That's been hurting for two hours versus 20 minutes versus four days. Again, all important information that we need to obtain.
1: Again, Talking to
0: patients, figuring, trying to figure out what's going on, we may have to we may have to uh, go into some sensitive topics, things like alcohol or drug usage, sexual history, abuse, assault. If we do have to ask these sensitive questions, we need to remain nonjudgmental and ask only questions that are pertain directly to the medical history. Or patient care again. I've already kind of mentioned alcohol is pretty much always going to be medically relevant. Same with drugs. So those are questions that we may have to ask. Again, sexual history, if it's not relevant, we don't need to be asking that. If I'm a 36 year old male having chest pain, is my sexual history going to be relevant? Probably not. There isn't. There is a situation where it can be. Chest pain. We give aspirin, nitro. Give nitro for patients taking erectile dysfunction medication, so it may be medically relevant. If it's not, though, if it, if I'm having trouble breathing, instead, then no, my sexual history is not really going to be relevant. Same situation. We have a 17-year-old female complaining of lower abdominal pain. Is their sexual history, possibility of pregnancy, going to be medically relevant? Absolutely. It's questions that we're going to have to ask. Again, asking these questions, we need to respect the patient's privacy. If we're out in the middle of public at Walmart, we don't need to ask a patient about their sexual history in front of a crowd or out in the middle of public. So wait till we get in the back of the ambulance. Again, in certain situations that 17-year-old female mom and dad's with, she's not going to feel comfortable answering questions about sexual history in front of mom or dad. So again, we may need to do what we can to try to separate mom or dad or wait to ask those
1: questions until the patient's in the back.
0: Again, ask the question at the appropriate time and location. And again, if we're asking these questions, it needs to be medically relevant. Remain within your scope of practice. Don't go on an expedition or a dive, female patient, asking about chances of pregnancy. Again, we don't need to know the last position she did it in, how many sexual partners she's totally had and all this stuff. It needs to be medically relevant. There's a possibility that she's pregnant. In most cases, because she's sexually active, that's all we need to know. Again, don't ask inappropriate questions because you're curious, I guess, what I'm, is what I'm trying to get at. Special challenges. If we have a patient that is silent, they're not talking to us. First thing we want to do is, okay, a patient's not answering my questions. Why is this patient not answering my questions? If they're unresponsive now, obviously we know why. But if we have a conscious patient that appears to be alert, and oriented, they're just not really talking to us. Provide adequate time to respond. Ask that question. Give them time to think about it. Give them a chance to respond. We ask a question. Also pay attention to nonverbal communication as well. Watch their body language, facial expressions, etc. Again, if we can't get information from the patient, just keep trying and try to treat the patient to the best of our ability with the information that we have. A lot of cases that may be, hey, all right, we're just going to take you up to the hospital and monitor the patient throughout transport.
1: Overly talkative patients.
0: Again, the goal with with interviewing is we do want the patient to do the majority of the talking, but they need to stay on course, making sure they're talking about stuff, things that we need to know. And again, we do want to try to limit interruption. So give them free reign for a limited time. In this case, again, if they're just rambling on and on and on, we we may need to interrupt to clarify statements or to steer them back on track. Maybe force use mostly closed-in questions. Again, we try to use open-ended, but if patients is rambling on and on, we may have to move more towards yes-no responses. And again, with every patient, you got to maintain patience and professionalism. And if patient sees that we're getting irritated at them, again, that rapport that we're trying to build is pretty much shattered. Now, they may completely not talk to us, not trust us, and may refuse care or something along those lines. So again, it's very important that we remain patient with them, make sure that they still feel comfortable
1: with us treating them. Patients
0: with multiple symptoms, patients complaining of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, et cetera, is determining the chief complaint. We need to know, well, what has changed with all of these signs and symptoms that you have? Patients complaining of lower leg pain, my back hurts, my stomach hurts, et cetera. How long has these been going on? Well, my leg's been hurting for three years, my back's been hurting for 10, et cetera we need to know what the true chief complaint is. Okay, well, you're describing all these signs and symptoms to me, these chronic conditions. Well, what is it that made you want to call the ambulance today at this time? Whatever they said changed or whatever, that then is going to move into our chief complaint. Anxious patients, very common. Patients may be nervous, sweating, tachycardic, So if we see a patient that's just totally upset, freaking out, very anxious about what's going on, we need to take steps to try to reassure. Again, provide reassurance, calm them down, but we do not give them false expectations or lie to them at the same time as well.
1: Angry patients. Anger and hostility may be a natural part of illness, injury, grieving process, family members just lost a loved one. Again,
0: just accept that this may be normal. It's a normal part of the grieving process for the patient and or family's feelings. Don't take it personally. Anger is common at times of loss, et cetera. And that anger may be geared or aimed at you. Do not take it personally. Do not engage. Don't yell back at them, et cetera. Remain calm, confident, and professional. However, at some point there is a line. If that, they cross that line and we no longer feel safe, now we got to do what we got to do to protect ourselves. And that may include leaving the scene.
1: Intoxicated patients,
0: everybody's favorite. Intoxicated patients, uh, protect yourself as an intoxicated patient may become violent. And again, alcohol changes people. People that are normally the nicest, calmest, most laid back people, once they get drunk, they can become very, very aggressive. That's not the case for me. When I get drunk, I get awesome. But again, we got to do what we got to do or just be aware. That's something that we need to keep our eye on. Do not challenge the patient. Again, a lot of drunks are looking for a fight. So we stand up to them and challenge them, bring it on. They're going to take that as an invite and actually do it. Remain calm, again, non-judgmental, and this is kind of hard for us to Just remember that intoxicated patients can be sick or injured. They can be drunk and having a heart attack at the same time. Alcoholism can actually increase the risk of things like heart disease and heart attacks. So again, don't just immediately write off whatever's wrong with them as oh, it's just, just because they're drunk. Make sure that we're taking the time to do a good thorough assessment. Not only that, intoxication can also hide injuries or illness. Patient may have a pretty significant injury, but since they're so drunk, they're not feeling that pain, so they don't tell us about it, or they're not limping or whatever a normal response would be.
1: Crying patients. Patient
0: is sobbing, be patient, empathetic, and supportive. But we need to allow that patient to cry. Don't try to make them stop crying. Again, just accept it. Allow them to cry. Just be patient, empathetic, and supportive
1: of their emotional state. Depressed patients. Look for signs such as
0: obvious weight loss, patients wearing clothes that are way too big for them, a flat effect. Uh, They're not showing any type of emotions. They're just kind of in a trance, kind of just sitting there, not showing any type of emotions. Poor eye contact, ask questions about insomnia, fatigue. Listen carefully. Do not judge them based on what they're telling you. The biggest concern with depressed patients and severe depression, it is a risk factor for suicide. So if the patient is depressed, those are questions we may need to ask. Oh, have you had any thoughts about harming, harming yourself? Have you tried anything? And again, get the patient help. There's a lot of, we can save lives just as as really dealing with a mental disorder like depression, suicidal thoughts, as we can treating a true medical, uh, not a mental
1: condition. Confusing behavior history, may have mental
0: illness, delirium, dementia. Delirium is an acute alteration. Again, when we say acute, rapid, sudden change. So delirium is an acute alteration in mental function, confusion, et cetera. Oftentimes, it is going to be caused by a reversible cause. Things like hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, causes delirium in patients. Dementia, on the other hand, is a chronic condition with a gradual decline in mental status. And if it's truly dementia, there is no reversible cause for that. So ask family members or others. Patients confused, not answering questions appropriately, just saying random off-the-wall stuff. We need to know, is this the patient's normal? Ask family. Hey, the patient's not acting very oriented. Is this normal for the patient? Do they have a history of dementia or et cetera? And again, if it's confusion, we always treat confusion or altered levels of consciousness as an acute condition meaning we're gonna try to fix it or try to find the cause of it at the very least, unless family tells us otherwise. Patient does have a history of dementia. This is how the patient normally acts. Now we can
1: count that as their normal and move on. Patients
0: with limited intelligence still may be able to provide an adequate history. Things like patient has a history of Down syndrome. Most Down syndrome patients are pretty highly um, effective can, highly functioning was the word I was looking for, we can ask them questions and they're probably able to answer all of the questions to us. Just be aware of, of omissions. Again, they don't have the same intelligence, so they may forget to tell us something. However, if the patient is severely cognitive impaired, nonverbal, etc. We're going to have to rely on family members or other caregivers to give us the information uh, about the patient that we're going to need.
1: language barrier something we deal with pretty frequently
0: try to use an interpreter so we can communicate with the patient ideally it's going to be another healthcare professional so if we were if I were me and my partner run on a spanish speaking only patient and my partner's able to speak spanish that's going to be the best interpreter I'm going to let my partner handle the the question the reason why a healthcare professional is preferred is they know what type of questions need to be asked. They know the importance of the type of answers that that patient is going to get. So again, we just kind of know what we're looking for. If it's another healthcare professional, if that's not the op- not a case, if I my partner me and my partner both don't speak Spanish, but we have a family member on scene that's bilingual, we can use the family member can interpret for us. We do need to use caution using non healthcare professional interpreters. We need to instruct the interpreter, hey, when I ask these questions, I want you to translate exactly what I'm asking to the patient and how they respond. Make sure you tell me every word that they say when they respond, because we ask them, are you having chest pain, moves over to the Spanish speaker. She translates, are you having chest pain? Family member, that's the patient, then starts speaking Spanish for two or three minutes. Family member looks at us and said, no, she's not having chest pain. I don't know Spanish, but I know no in English is the same in Spanish. So I want to know what it was the other minute and a half of conversation about. So, again, we just want to encourage them. Do not filter what I say, translating to the patient, and do not filter what the patient is saying when you translate it back to me. And we are seeing telephone translation services are becoming very popular. If we have no other interpreter, you can even use apps on your phone, speak into the app. Let it translate to the patient. Let the patient speak into the app. Translate it back to us. Do what we can in order to communicate to the patient. If our patient is hearing impaired, we want to look directly at the patient while we're speaking. Many hearing impaired patients got, have gotten very good at reading lips. Patient no sign language. Use an interpreter to translate in sign language for us. And with hearing impaired, if there's another way of communicating with them, we can just write down our questions on a pen and paper
1: and let the patient answer.
0: Visually impaired patients. Very important. We are not we don't take anything for granted. They don't see us coming. They don't see what we're going to do to them. So we are going to tell them every little thing that we're going to do. All right, I'm going to borrow your left arm right here. We're going to put a blood pressure cuff on. It's going to get a little tight when we'll check your blood pressure. Use touch to reassure the patient. Constant communication is key. And for most service animals, you don't want to try to pet any seeing eye dog or service animal. Remember, this is about the only situation where we will transport animals in the back of our truck. If it is a service animal, we are legally obligated to take the service animal with us to the hospital.
1: What if they're an emotional support animal?
0: I'm going to. Put that on your department. You let the department make the decision. In most situations, uh, emotional support is not considered a, it's not covered to the ADA requirements. So again, ultimately leave it up to your protocols on that. Special challenges, talking with family and friends of a patient. Certain situations, we may have to ask family and friends for this information Information about the patient. If we can't get that information from the pet patient, they may need to fill in the gaps. So they are very, can be very useful. But remember, we are going to be bound by HIPAA. And if you want to see some family members pissed off, we are working on a husband or asking a wife a bunch of questions about the previous history of the husband and so forth. And then the wife is asking us questions. We have to be cautious of what we can tell them because, again, we're going to be bound by. HIPAA.
1: Pediatric patients
0: maybe unable to understand the questions. It's going to be very important that we ask the question in a way that the patient understands what we're wanting to know. Fear is amplified by the unknown, so we can tell the patient what to expect. If we know we're not going to give the patient a shot or an injection or something, tell them, hey, buddy, we're going to take you up to the hospital, but while you're with me in the ambulance, no shots. At, age, at four years of age, the patient should become the primary source of the history. Not necessarily past medical history, the name of the medications, talking about what's going on today. Chief complaint, things along those lines. And before the age of four, parents or guardians are going to need to be the ones that we get most of that
1: information from.
0: Elderly patients may have physical limitations such as poor eyesight and hearing. Again, we just need to try to work around those best we can. May have dementia or delirium. Again, that may make
1: assessment harder for us as well.
0: While we're dealing with the elderly, make sure that we're patient and professional and use family members, friends, caregivers as needed to get leave. Information
1: that we do need to get from them. So, in
0: summary, we'll take vital signs on every single patient that we encounter. That first set of vital signs that we obtain is known as our baseline vital signs, and we compare other sets of vital signs to that baseline to detect trends. Bottle signs include pulse. Breathing, blood pressure, skin signs, pupillary changes, pupils, and pulse oximetry.
1: Medical history is important in determining the patient's condition, care that is needed.
0: And again, while we're getting that history, we may have to overcome challenges in order to get the information that we need from that patient.
1: All right. Any questions over the rest of chapter?